0: For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the word of God. You may be seated. Whether in fiction or non-fiction, I've always loved stories about people who are overcomers. People have some great thing that they have to struggle against, against all odds. Of course, we love that in sports stories. You have the miracle on the ice. Um, The United States team, not filled with professionals, but amateurs, beat the Russians. Yeah! In fiction, you have... Um, I'm going to give you four examples of overcomers today, of people who overcome. One from fiction, one from one from history, one from the Bible, and then the fourth one's a surprise. The first one's from fiction. One of my favorite book series is The Lord of the Rings, and in the book, not in the movie, the the Return of the King, when all hope was lost with Sam and Frodo, and Sam is, by the way, the hero of Lord of the Rings, not anybody else. It was Sam. Sauron wins. But when Frodo could no longer carry his burden, Sam stepped up. And it says actually in the book in Return of the King, but even as hope died in Sam or seemed to die, it was turned to new strength. Sam's plain hobbit face grew stern, almost grim as the hardened, as will hardened in him and felt through all his limbs a thrill. As if he was turning into some creature of stone and steel that neither despair nor weariness nor endless barren miles could subdue. In the book of First John, one of the things that focuses on not, is on love. And not love in general, like I love pizza or it's Valentine's Day, be mine. But specifically on the love of God for us in sending his son and then the work of the love of God in us in loving each other. That is how God's love is made perfect or complete. The word there for perfect means complete as opposed to lacking anything. In Lord of the Rings, it's such an inspiring moment in the movies. You have Frodo falling down and then Sam says, I can't carry the ring for you, but I can carry you. The love for one another, it's it's such a powerful thing. It, it, It overcomes fear in us in the natural. But we know in the supernatural, it chases away the fear of judgment. So that was in fiction, in, now in history. In 1915, a group of 20, 25 sailors set out to, to not only arrive in Antarctica in 1915. Antarctica is like the worst, most inhospitable portion on the face of the earth to be at, to try to just survive in. It's cold, it's a desert somehow, even though it's covered in ice, It is very dangerous. In 1915, there is no help coming from you. They were going to... The idea was to arrive on one coast of Antarctica and then to dog sled to the other coast of Antarctica. A feat that wouldn't be done for for almost a half a century later. Uh, The man's name was Ernest Shackleton. And he had this passion in him to explore the frozen continent of Antarctica. Unfortunately, they never actually reached Antarctica. As they were getting closer, they got shipwrecked on a on a sea of ice. Their ship being broken, it is 1915 once again, and in, for 2 years they survived in the worst place on the face of the earth. The only thing that could have been worse is literally to be in the vacuum of space. They survived for 2 years not losing one person. It's an inspiring story. Brent Owens, the one who told me about it, then I read like two or so books on it, I've been watching documentaries. It's a powerful moment of overcoming against all odds, and then to overcome with others, it's not only get along, but the fellowship between them to remain intact, for if the fellowship breaks, they break apart and they die, but their fellowship withstood the barren, weary miles. They became creatures of steel um, and stone that the barren miles, endless barren miles, could not subdue. During that two years, there are two stories that st- that really stick with me of the moment of wanting to to give in, and one it was one was physical, and one really was was emotional or even spiritual. The first one was once they had crossed the Drake Passage. The Drake Passage is a part in the ocean. It's the worst part in the ocean because there's no land masses. So wind gets to do whatever it wants. Three of them on a lifeboat cross the Drake Passage. They get to South Georgia Island. They then cross South Georgia Island. That's a feat that people wouldn't do for another 50 years with full gear, full stomachs, radio communication, and all the time in the world. But they had 22 men on this island called Elephant Island who are depending on them. During their trek across South Georgia Island, um, Shackleton, having experienced, being experienced in the frozen South, knew you couldn't sleep for very long because if you did, you would die. And when you're cold and you're hungry, you just want to lay down and die. That's one of the words, that's, it's his words. But they couldn't even have the luxury of dying because they had 22 men depending on them. So they pushed forward this is one of the amazing things that gets mentioned in some of them and not in others, is that they would put in their journals about there being four of them. There was only three. But they were convinced at times there was a fourth person walking with us. Of course, we know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being in the fiery furnace. And looking in there, there's a fourth man walking. Christ walks with us through those barren miles. He gives us the steel in our spine that the long, weary miles cannot overcome. The second story that that really stirred me was during one of their leaner moments, they only had for their water supply for the entire day, each one of them was half a cup of water and evaporated milk. That's all. Two of them were arguing and during the argument... One of them knocked over his own cup. He first becomes furious with the person he's arguing with, blaming him for the accident, and then almost breaks down in sobbing tears. And his other people in the tent, three others, including the one who arguing with him, pours the only thing they had to live on that day into, the, into his cup. These stories are powerful of overcoming. From the scripture, we have Elijah. Elijah, in 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah was the prophet of the Lord in Israel. It's not not ever easy to be the prophet, but it's very hard to be a prophet in a nation that has thumbed its nose at God. And Israel had. They had turned to the Baals. And their king, their king, not their leader, and not not the rebels, but the king himself brought in Baal worship. They were sacrificing their own children to these demon gods, and Elijah confronts the king and tells him, "Until I give the word, it won't rain." Because God had promised that if they would turn to idols, He would withhold the rain, and, and Elijah held God to His promise. And Elijah, when it was time for it to reign again, shows himself to one of the king's attendants. And the king's attendant is, is very worried that if he comes back without Elijah, he would die. And Elijah says this to him, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. Elijah stood before God so he wouldn't bow before men. We have a lot of people who call themselves godly men and women who've bowed their knee before men in the last couple years. It has to be because they don't stand before God. Because if you stand before God, you don't kneel before men. Elijah endured that time. He endured the time of them constantly looking for his life. And it wasn't in his own strength, but the strength he received from God, even in his lowest moments, to stand during those moments and he, was an, he overcame this world by the grace and power that God had given him. My final example, it's a surprising one. It's you. You're my hero. You're my example of somebody who overcomes. At least I hope it's you. I know many of your stories. Some of you I don't. But I know the wars you fought to be here today. I know physical challenges that you face, I know emotional uh, fa- challenges that you face, spiritual cha- challenges that you face. Not the deadly arctic winds or the natural world or some dark lord named Sauron. But no no, you face you face the enemy of our souls every day coming at you. You face you face the culture of this world who knows you don't belong. You face your own sinful nature. Many of you face things that other people would have to face. They would just curl up into a ball, but you've overcome. And you've overcome by the word of your testimony, by the blood of the lamb, and most importantly, your faith is of what overcomes the world. You stand before God, so you won't bow before all of these things. You hate the sin you once loved and love the righteousness you once ignored. As you stand strong in the love of Christ and in your love for each other, you are a flame against a hurricane, but the hurricane cannot blow it out. You stand bright, not from your own exertion, not from your own labors, but because of the power of the Holy Spirit in you. As we go from chapter 4 into chapter 5 in First John, if you're just joining us or you're new, we've been in First John for quite a while now. I'm a preacher that believes in preaching the Bible, not my own opinions, not my own, my, my own agenda. So we go in the scripture, we go verse by verse, we'll be going verse by verse today. As we go from chapter 4 into 5, I want to remind you of some of the things John has already written in his book. His book uses a structure of three points. David Gusick calls it a three-legged st- stool. You can use whatever illustration you want to use, but as long as you understand this, you cannot Use one of these. You cannot indulge in one of these and ignore the other two. These are the three points that John keeps going back to. One, doctrine. Believing the right things about Jesus. Here's one of them. Jesus was always God. This is one of the doctrines that keeps getting under attack in various churches. Maybe it's ignorance. Maybe it's actually a a desire that's ungodly. But Jesus Christ on this earth is always God. He voluntarily suppresses his godly attributes so that he can die on the cross, bleed, bury, and come back, to come back on the third day. He is always God. That's one of the things that John is fighting against here with a group of people called the Gnostics. So you believe the right things about Jesus Christ. Two, righteousness. It is the evidence of a changed nature. It is not the prerequisite for a changed nature. Meaning, you don't have to get your act together before you come to Jesus Christ, but if you really come to Jesus Christ, your life changes. That is part of the evidence of this. Third, love. Specifically, love for other believers. This letter is written in response to the false teaching of John's day that is still alive and active in our world today. The false doctrine came into the community of believers through a false love. In order to reach the Greeks, they believed that they had to compromise the message of Jesus Christ to be a Greek philosophy, therefore emptying it, emptying it of its power. Unfortunately, it seems like a lesson in church history that just never gets learned. I don't know if you're familiar with the term voodoo. Voodoo is not does not come purely from pagan religion. It's a mixing of pagan religion and the Christianity that came into into haiti into other areas they thought okay we can mix this together but when you mix it together you empty of its power because you don't have the cross you don't have a god who comes say die and come to me and find that you will live pick up your cross and follow me so in john's day people thought we could make this into a greek philosophy and we can reach the greeks but they emptied of its power they didn't become a Greek to win the Greeks. No, they made the message into a Greek message, and they lost the power. When men and women of God point out false doctrines and false teachers in love, according to the pattern we see in Scripture, they are often called dividers like Elijah. If you modernize the language of 1 John and just post it on, Facebook, on a Facebook group or on a Twitter thread of professing Christians, you know what the, what the responses will be? They will say the OP, which stands for original poster, is unloving, legalistic, and he divides the church. How do I know this? People just quote scripture on forms without saying First John, whatever, and that is what people say. They start speaking against the very words of God because they don't know the word of God. They, they know what's on mugs or what's on the daily Bible verse, but they don't know the Word of God. So they attack the Word of God and will malign the person as though they are unloving, legalistic, or dividing the church. I made that reference to 1st King 18 for a reason, because when King Ahab meets with Elijah, he says, Oh, troubler of Israel. You know what Elijah says back to him? You know, you'd think if this was today, this is what Elijah would be like. You know, I got to apologize for things other prophets have said. You know, we've not always been a a, a good group of people. And I know people are suffering today, um, but just bear with me. Now he says, I'm not the troubler of Israel. You're the troubler of Israel. (laughs) You know what happens when you get a lot of pastors on talk shows? They start making all kinds of excuses. They start trying to apologize for God, You know what they should say? If any trouble has come to this earth that God is bringing in judgment, it's not his fault, it's your fault. It's not my fault, it's your fault. But you have to stand before God in order to do that. If you don't stand before God, you can't overcome the world. If you're not born of God, you can't overcome the world. Because what overcomes the world is your faith. The believer in change. We know that the kingdom of God is not like other kingdoms. Other kingdoms are obsessed with influence, power, and numbers. Unfortunately, in church, we often go back to that. So many people will say it's not about the numbers, but numbers certainly do help. Honestly, big numbers make us feel good. It's not very comfortable. If there was only like 20 of you here today, it would be somewhat difficult for me to preach, I'll be honest. I mean I, that would be that would be getting in my head. I'd be asking the Holy Spirit to constantly help me with this. But we take this to a dangerous level when we are so focused on getting people in the door that we that we make the we water down the barrier for entry. We then become the judges. We don't think this. We think that okay, if we just we don't talk about sin, righteousness and judgment, that we are now not being judgmental? No, we are being judgmental. We are just absolving those we like and still condemning those we don't. We then become the standard. Once again, people think that this is loving. They're like, okay, that's not very loving to say that these people are outside God's 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 love, God's family. Okay, but now you're deciding who gets to be in and out instead of what the scripture says. There is... A connection between the believer and a change in behavior. It's not the change in behavior that makes you a believer. It is still faith alone, by grace alone, in Jesus Christ alone. But a person who has been remade, reborn, has a different way of acting and living and seeing the world around them. This is the redeeming, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. To this point, we will say stupid, unscriptural things like... This person, you know, my brother, my sister, my kid, man, they're living in an open rebellion to God, whatever sin is their pet sin. They hate other believers. See, they don't want to go to church because church is full of hypocrites. But they love God. You know what John would say to that? No, they don't. What you're telling me right now is the evidence that they don't love God. So this three-legged stool of doctrine, of, of love, and of righteousness... You can't have one and not have the other two. You can't say, hey, I'm going to study the scriptures. I'm going to be solid on the word of God. But don't ask me to interact with other believers. I can't stand them. (laughs) Never mind the stuff I do. I know so much more than you do. I've got all these degrees. God's not impressed with that. Because he doesn't just call us to agree with certain axioms. Vice versa, if you say, okay, God is love. That's the perfect doctrine. I just love people. If you don't know God, you don't know what love is. You have a tainted love that is more destructive and toxic than other people's hate. Or if you say, hey, this person, this is what I hear a lot. Well, they live really moral lives, so they're showing fruit. No, they're not, because the other fruit is love and belief, faith. John now tells us about the person who's been made perfect in the love of God from chapter 4, you know what they do? They overcome the world because one, they are born of God. Two, they no longer find the law of God to be a burden. And three, they know victory. Verses 1 and 2, they are born of God. Verse 1 right here, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. John likes to make his point, and then remake his point, go on to something else, and then refresh this and all the rest too. And that is what he's doing right here. You're born of God? Great. You love other believers. If you love other believers, you love God. If you love God, you'll obey his commandments. You'll live in a righteous way. And it goes on and on and on. This whole, I don't know if you've been following this, but as we've been going along in First John, I've been preaching the same sermon however many times I've been preaching this. Because this is what John is doing. You know why? Because we need to be refreshed in this constantly. Constantly. I need to hear this. I need to preach this to myself when maybe somebody in the church that I know is a believer but is acting like a knucklehead comes after me and to be like, I still have to love them. I have to forgive them because Christ has forgiven me and he loves me. Not everybody who is born is born of God. Not everybody who claims to be a Christian truly is a Christian. Verse 1, everyone who believes. Jesus talks about how his sheep hear his voice. Not everyone who checks the box on, on, the, on the Census Bureau thing of Christian truly is a Christian. C.H. Spurgeon made this point that in every Greek lexicon, when you look up faith and you look up belief, you will never see it restricted to only a belief in the existence of a deity. James is a book that often comes under attack as under a criticism in the past. Past People misunderstand the book of James. They, they somewhat worry that he is undermining the, the rest of the scripture that says that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Faith alone and by grace alone. But that's not the case at all. He is saying this is what faith looks like. You say you have faith? What does faith look like? It is a sister book to this one. Because John says... You say you love God, but you hate your brother. I don't believe you. You say you have faith. Really? If your faith is that you believe that there is only one God, James would say, great. But guess what? The demons believe that have that same kind of faith. That's not true saving faith. You say you have faith to move mountains. Let's see if it can move you to compassion for your brother and sister in Christ. Faith and belief is understand, understood in God's word is not simply an agreement with an axiom, it is trust. It's a trust that Jesus is the Christ. Not a Christ, but the Christ. Not that he became Christ, but he is always Christ, to the glory of God the Father. He is the only eternal Son of God, co-equal to the Father. He became a baby, lived a perfect life, died on a cross, was resurrected, and stands at the right hand of the Father. You are then born of God. John loves that phrase, born of God. He's used it multiple times already. In chapter 2, verse 29. In chapter 3, verse 9. And in chapter 4, verse 7. Here he makes the connection with his last point here. Is that if you love God, you love fellow believers. In fact, he puts it into family terms. If you've been born of the Father, you love others who've been born of the Father. This is naturally in you, unless you are believing lies. If you love the Father, you love those born of the Father. Love brings, um, this brings love into focus. It's not, do you love humanity in general, but do you love Bill specifically? If Bill has been born of the Father and you love the Father, you love Bill. The more, like, to the person we talk about, the harder this becomes. You have family members in the Lord. Sometimes this is difficult to remember that they're a brother and sister in Christ before they're your brother and sister in your family. Because families, you know, we we fight, right? We quarrel. I don't know. Maybe some of you are like my family. We never quarrel. Good for you. Um, A lot of people, their family, you quarrel sometimes. You get on each other's nerves. You know the reason why? It's because you love each other so much. So slights become a lot bigger because it's the person you love. In Christ, we remember that they are my brother and sister in Christ first. And the commandment that tells me to love my brother and sister in Christ applies to them too. In verse 3, my second point is just one verse. Verse 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. This was the keynote verse for my entire series on the Ten Commandments. Because so many times people are like, we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. The old commandments, the law, don't, don't apply to us today. Yes, they do. Jesus said, not one jot or tittle from the law will pass away, even though heaven and earth passes away. It's not in the same way because the law can't forgive. This is in Corinthians. Paul was worried that people are going to start thinking, well, we should just throw out God's law. He's like, no, it's important. It just can't save. God's law is important because it brings us to Christ. It shows us beyond a shadow of a doubt, you can't save yourself. And if you break one of God's law, you've broken all of God's law, you think you're righteous, think again, there are none who are righteous. No, not one. Thank you for that. But that does not mean God's law is not important. Psalms 1 speaks of the one who is blessed. Blessed. They do not walk in the advice of the wicked and they don't stand in the way of sinners. They do not engage in the ridicule of God. Instead, they delight in the law of the Lord. Read that with verse 3 in mind. Uh, from Psalms chapter 1, the man who is blessed delights in the law of the Lord. And we read in verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. There's something that happens in your life, in your heart, in your spirit when you come to Christ. It's not that you become perfect, it's not perfection, it's direction. And you find the laws of God your delight. Even though you know that you have not kept them perfectly. Because there is one who has kept them perfectly. And every time I'm confronted with the love of God, I realize what he saved me from. I realize more than, it, it goes beyond that too, because the righteousness of God is mine now. He sees me as righteous, not as innocent, but as righteous. Not only as innocent, I mean, but as Righteous. Now the law of God is my delight. It's not a burden anymore. It used to be a burden. Back when I would try to do, I would try to think of the scales and I'm trying to do enough good deeds to even out my bad deeds. And hopefully, maybe when I die, God will think maybe more of the good deeds outweigh the bad deeds. It becomes a burden. Because it's such a burden, people make up laws. It's where legalism comes in. Jesus' day, they had books and books and books of extra laws people had to to go by. And when they did this, they nullified the word of God with their new laws. So they knew in the word that you had to take care of your parents. But they're like, okay, how about we make a new law that says, if you just take that money and you give it to the temple, you can just tell them, figure it out yourself, mom and dad. Jesus confronts them on this. In the new nature, we have this new heart that delights in the law of God. The new new covenant comes with this promise from God in, in Jeremiah 31. He will put his law within us and will write his law in our hearts. Verse 3 is the fulfillment of that promise. We know that we love him when we keep his commandment. It is more than that too. They are delight, not a burden. Verse 3. It is going from the have-tos to the get-tos. Somebody heard from Rocky Olmsted. He's he's not here this morning. But um, I was like, I'm going to steal that. Because before we knew Christ, it was all these have-tos. You have to not drink or chew or girl, go with girls who do or all the other things. And we tried, we tried our hardest, right, before we knew Christ. I tried to mind my P's and Q's. I tried to go by my own moral, moral code and I failed miserably. But now I'm in Christ. I am now free to serve him. I now have a delight when i do these things when I, when anger wells up within me and i'm about to lose my mind but the holy fruit of the holy spirit takes over of self control thank you jesus i'm living this different life and this is one of the things that was amazing to me because i didn't know this when i became a christian first all of a sudden like i'm not trying to be better but i'm being better and people around me could see it i remember my mom telling me like what's going on in you and i was like i don't know I don't desire these things anymore. I desire Christ. This is the new nature. It is why his law is not a burden. We go from the have-tos to the get-tos. I get to love those in church. And they get to love me whether they like it or not. (laughs) His burden's not heavy. One of the pleas of Jesus in the Gospels was to take up his yoke. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Jesus pleads with us to take up his yoke and learn from him. Why? Verse 30 of Matthew 11 tells us. Tells us, in essence, what burden? The law of the Lord has become his delight. It's written on his heart. Matthew 23, 4, Jesus tells us about those who tie heavy yokes to folks. That's what false religion, false teaching does. It has to add or subtract from God's law it ends up only being another burden. There seems to be always be a bent in this in church history, even church today. I hope, I hope it starts off innocently, like somebody has a personal conviction, and they're trying to honor God with this, but it goes into something that's wrong when they try to put that onto others. They make it a law or they use it as a measuring stick of holiness or spirituality. Maybe you have a certain conviction that others don't. It doesn't make you more holy than others. I mean, follow it though. If your conscience is telling you something is off limits, when it's not off limits in the scripture, listen to that as long as you're not breaking God's law. But don't make that a law for other people. That's putting a burden on them. Jesus was calling this out in his day. He says they tie heavy burdens on people, but they themselves don't lift anything. Finally, I want to give a biblical example of what it's like when the law of God is your delight. It's not a burden to you. And that is Jacob from the Old Testament. Jacob, the son of Isaac. I don't know if you know this story. He liked this gal. He liked this gal so much, he signed a really bad contract Seven years of slavery, basically. Seven years. And you know what the scripture tells us? It seemed like a single day because of his love for her. This is something we can't really express in human terms. My love for God makes my service to God my delight. I got to experience this firsthand during Christmas when the pipes broke. And I had to be down there, and I didn't want to be. I was getting soaked. I was smelling really bad. And I called two other people to come. Thank you very much, Paul Paul and Lindsay, for doing the same thing. And I remember I was like, i got to change my attitude here. It's not that I have to do this. I get to do this for the people of God. And then it becomes something kind of fun, which is weird. I don't know how to describe it. It seemed kind of fun to me to do it, even though it was a, a huge inconvenience because I was getting to love others with the love that God has given me. Three, they know victory. The one who is an overcomer is born of God, does not find the law of God to be a burden. It's because they live in victory. Verse 4 and 5 For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is that that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? What does it mean to be an overcomer? What does it mean? You know, I know that there's that song from Mendisa. Maybe some of you are humming it right now. I'm an overcomer. I'll be honest, that song has been ruined for me forever because I watched the movie Unplanned. Unplanned is about abortion, and they should have picked a better song because there's a point in there where they are trying to get as many abortions done as possible before a hurricane hits, and they're playing Overcomer. I'm like, can't listen to it the same way. (laughs) You should have. You should have maybe. You should have maybe talked to ACDC with the whole Highway to Hell thing because that would have fit a little better. <laughs> what does it mean to be an overcomer in church and conferences and camps? They're like, you're an overcomer, and everybody cheers. Ah! What does it mean to be an overcomer in this context? Well, John tells us straight out. There's no. There's no asking about this. It's our faith. Our faith. Our trust, we talked about what faith is, it's trust. Trusting in God like you trust the sun is going to shine. Trusting in God like you trust a parachute as you jump out of a plane. Trusting in God like as you're driving on the road, you're not on black ice. It's a new creation, and this new creation is the victory that overcomes the world. Everybody who's been born of God does this. This can't be This can't be bought. This cannot be done through human effort. It can't be purchased. This is, the serious, this is serious business, folks. It's natural. It's in the natural. You can run a marathon, but you cannot, you, you, can, you can climb Mount Everest, but you cannot overcome this world unless you are born of God. It is your faith that overcomes the world. The world wants to own you. This is why the world hates you, dear believer. It can't own you, because Christ already does. Everything, this world, when I talk about the world, I'm talking about the culture of the world, not the people in the world. If this world can't own you, it hates you. It couldn't own Christ, so it hated Christ. And Christ said, it will hate you because it hated me first. Because it cannot own you, it hates you, but you have overcome the world. One of the promises of Jesus Christ that never gets put into those 99 promises of God is this, that in this world you will have trouble He says, take heart, I've overcome the world. You overcome the world. Like the previous verse tells us, it is spiritual worship. It's nothing short of overcoming the world. Let's break down, according to the scripture today, what it means. What it means, not just today, but all through 1st John, what it means to overcome the world. It means to overcome sin. Once again, this isn't perfectionism, it's direction. It's a constant direction towards God. The Holy Spirit gives you this power and this strength to overcome sin. Truly overcome it. You've been born of God. You have the freedom to follow and to cast off every sin that so easily entangles. And the the devil wants to tell you, no, you don't. You're always going to be like this. And to make it part of your personality. No, I'm just this way. And we label ourselves by our sins. Sorry, that sin doesn't get to own you. Christ already owns you by his blood. You overcome influence, the influence of this world. This is what we have already been told time and time again in 1 John. Do not love the world or the things in this world. We overcome this world when we don't love it, when we don't desire the things of this world. The power of the new birth birth makes us long for another kingdom. Finally, we can overcome false teaching. That is the context of First John, is overcoming false teaching. Some people are saying, um, you're dividing the church if you call out false teachers, false prophets. John didn't feel this way. Most of the New Testament writers did not feel this way. Some of them literally name names. There's a story of John. I love this story of John. So there's this, uh, one of the heretics of his day named Centhras. Centhras was preaching that Jesus was not a virgin birth, that he was just a man like any other, a righteous man, but a man like any other who became the Christ at his baptism. So this is what John is is writing against here. So came came into this bathhouse John was at, and one of John's disciples had told this to others, that John got up and left because he would not bathe in the same water as such an enemy of the truth. That seems unloving. No, it's not unloving. Unloving, you know what's unloving? For the shepherd to make friends with the wolf. That's unloving towards the sheep. For the shepherd to use the sheep to his own advantage, to devour the sheep, to feed himself instead of the sheep, that is unloving. That is hateful. Worship team, would you come up at this time? As we get ready for our final song, the encouragement in God's word today is that you have within you, if you are a believer, now if you're not a believer, today fall upon the, fall upon the mercies of Jesus Christ be born again. We've talked about the marks of the believer. It's not that you did something religious way back when, or even a prayer. It's that you died to yourself and became alive in Christ. And you have a new nature. So believers, you have a new nature. And God has made you an overcomer. What overcomes the world? Our faith. This is what overcomes the world, except the, except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. From that belief, we love each other. From that belief, we act in righteous ways. Would you please stand with us as we sing our last song and respond to God's word today? For some of you, maybe it's just to remind yourself, I am an overcomer. Right now, you're dealing with something. Something really, really difficult. And fear grips your heart. Bitterness, unforgiveness grips your heart. You need to preach this to yourself. I'm an overcomer. God has put his spirit in me. I can overcome this. Maybe today you just have a challenge in your life and you have to remember that God has made you strong and you can overcome. Maybe today you find in yourself that you are not living the righteous life that God has called you to. We've already been told in 1 John, confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you feel dirty today in your sin? Confess your sins to the Lord, dear believer. He'll cleanse you from unrighteousness. He'll forgive you because it's right and just because he already has. We use this for unbelievers and then we get robbed from the benefit of it, which is that we can be clean before God and know that we are clean as we confess our sins. Worship team, would you lead us in our final song? Thank you.